Hi, listeners. This is Kate Berry, producer of Getting Ethics to Work. In this show, we usually discuss workplace problems that stem from ethical issues, but today we're going to widen the scope to discuss an avenue that a company might take to make their practices and outcomes more ethical as a whole. I hope you enjoy. From my home office, on behalf of the Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University, this is Getting Ethics to Work, the podcast that tackles the trickier moral dilemmas that you might face in the workplace. I'm your host and Prindle Institute director, Andy Cullison. And now for each episode of Getting Ethics to Work, we discuss a case or an issue and unpack the difficult and often hidden ethical tensions that can make it hard to get along with others at work. All right, now before we get started, I want to remind everyone that we are not lawyers and are not offering legal expertise, but as an ethicist, I can introduce you to other cool people who know more about stuff than me. And today we have a special guest, Christopher Marquis. He is the Samuel C. Johnson Professor in Sustainable Global Enterprise at Cornell University. Christopher, welcome to the show. Great. Thank you, Andrew. It's great to be here. We appreciate you coming. So, as as you've probably heard me say, we we like to start with a case and uh, break it down, find what those hidden uh, moral dilemmas might be. So, the case we have today, we have Bob, Cynthia, and Alan, and they're sitting. A, a board meeting has just finished, and they're sort of sitting around lingering. And Bob has Cynthia and Alan's attention. Cynthia is a very new employee, uh, just recently hired uh, to work in uh, the creative department. And Alan is uh, associate VP of finance, dealing mostly with the numbers. And Bob has both their ears and he's like, hey, I want to run this idea by both of you. He just discovered this thing called B Corps. And B Corps, some kind of socially responsible thing that he thinks the organization can do. And he starts to tell them a little bit about what B Corps are. And Chris, you know a little bit about what B Corps are. Could you just put words into Bob's mouth for us? Yeah, yeah, sure thing. So, so B Corp is, is a company, as you're mentioning, uh, whose social and environmental performance has been certified by a nonprofit B Lab. Uh, you know, you, people are probably familiar with many certifications like Fair Trade, Organic, or LEED, which are about specific products. The B Corp certification is about the company uh, as a whole. So it's a holistic assessment of the extent to which the company is socially and environmentally uh, responsible. Um, there's many well-known B Corps, like, you know, well-known social impact, environmental impact brands like Patagonia, Seventh Generation, Ben & Jerry's, other well-known companies like Allbirds, Bombas, Athleta, King Arthur, Flower. So Bob has just said that to Cynthia and Alan, explaining what a B Corp is. And while he's talking, Cynthia and Alan both have their laptops up and they're Googling B Corp as he's talking. And, and they look through it. And, and both of them are kind of mm, grimacing. Uh, and Bob can tell he's already sort of losing them. And Cynthia starts shaking her head and is like, oh, this is just more of that phony certification nonsense. I just, I just think this is a terrible idea. And Alan is like, look at all the resources that this is going to cost. And my gosh, why would a company ever bind themselves in this way? This is terrible. And at the same time, they both say, business isn't the proper vehicle for social change. And they're like, this is a non-starter, Bob. They get up and walk out. And Bob's like, can't believe it. He thought he had this great idea. And he's amazed that he's got someone like Cynthia, the really socially conscious person whom he thought would be on board. And he's got someone like 
the pragmatic VP guy, and he thinks there's a good business case for B Corps, and suddenly he's lost both of them, and he's completely at a loss as to why that's the case. So that's our case. What do you think about breaking this down? Yeah, really interesting case. And, you know, I, you know I've written a book on, on B Corps, which is, which is just out. It's called Better Business, How the B Corp Movement is Remaking Capitalism. Uh, so I've talked to a lot of B Corps, and I have, you know, I've heard some of these same objections. And so, you know, one thing I think, as you think about sort of a change leader within an organization like Bob, I think, you know, maybe approaching Cynthia and Alan separately might have been a better strategy uh, to try to, you know, because both of them are going to have different interests and objections, and you could have different sort of evidence or arguments against them. Great. Okay, well, let's let's take them in turn, then. Let's start with Cynthia. So now... Let's let's think about some of her skepticism or what some of her skepticism might be. Now, one thing I can imagine uh, someone in Cynthia's position thinking is, look, these things are typically just for show. Uh, we've seen a, we've seen tons of these like get certified to be the most ethical company. And she's like, this just looks like that. And customers are going to see right through this. And a lot of times these things are also very checkbox, right? And anytime you give someone a criteria to follow, they can stick to the letter of the law, but still be a pretty awful company if you just give them a series of checkboxes to jump through. So let's start there. Suppose she's coming from that space. What kind of things should Bob be thinking about? Yeah, so I think the sort of, uh, I, I think you could make a, a strong case that this is in some way sort of, you know, the real deal. You know, I think that she's right to have this idea that maybe it's just a phony certification, an example for, for companies to greenwash in, in some ways, to make themselves be looking like they're sort of green or more socially responsible, but actually not impacting their overall operations. I think that's a real, that's a real important issue in our society. And I think a lot of companies, that's the way they do things. Uh, but I think that, you know, if Bob were to sit down with her, and go through sort of the rigor of the assessment. So one would go through the rigor of the assessment. So it's looking at like, not just things like policies within the company, like, you know, employment policies, but actually outcomes. Are they delivering financial well-being to their employees, you know, lowering carbon emissions, lowering waste. And it's, it's sort of the assessment across five different areas from employees, consumers, environment, community, uh, and, and the governance uh, aspect. And so I think that and it's about 200 questions uh, that that company has to go through to assess that, them on these issues. And it's sort of tailored by, you know, company size, company industry, and also geography. So there's B Corps all over the world, not just in the U.S. So I think he could work with her around the assessment. I think that, you know, the second thing he could do is, just show her the types of companies that are part of this already. You know, these are companies that are well known for being deeply socially committed. And I think that, you know, there's somewhat a, I don't know, peer effect, I guess, in some ways that, you know, if, you know, all these companies are doing it and we really think these are good companies, it's like, well, maybe actually this is a, a system that's of value. So I think those are sort of two things you could do for those sets of uh, uh, objections. Here's another uh, skeptical argument I could imagine someone in Cynthia's position raising, which is, look, at, at the end of the day, companies like ours, we we look to the bottom line and, you know, we, we answer to the shareholders. And so you can pledge all you want, but when push comes to shove, 
if we have to make a decision, uh, you know the higher-ups are just going to go with the shareholders. So isn't this just a waste of our time? So I think this is actually why being a B Corp is even more essential for this company than others, if that's the case. Because actually, you know, what the B Corp certification does, there's a legal component too, where the company actually has to change its articles of incorporation such that it is no longer just the shareholders as the primary uh, stakeholder, but the company is responsible to all stakeholders. And this is something that is then put in the articles of incorporation or the corporate form. There's a new type of company that goes along with called a benefit corporation. So this is something where the leaders will have, in some ways, cover against the investors if the investors are trying to say, well, you know, you have shareholder fiduciary duty, and actually this is a way to change the structure of the company to make it more socially responsible. Well, that, now that's interesting to me. So if, I, if I'm understanding you correctly, when you decide to become a B Corp, you can't really just pay lip service to the commitment because you take on a legal obligation to do the things you say you're committing yourself to. Exactly. And so I would say, you know, the, certifi- the, the actual assessment certification has teeth as well. And there's checking process, random audits, uh, and then there's the legal component. And then also there's, in some ways, the collective action component too. In addition to paying a fee based on the size of the company, the leaders of the company have to sign what is called the Declaration of Interdependence. Interdependence being sort of recognizing the different stakeholders that connect into a, a company. And this really puts them as part of a, a, a community of like-minded businesses, all of which are working to make the world better. Now let's turn our attention to the pragmatist, Alan, the VP of finance, who said, this is just a ridiculous waste of money. Look how much this costs. Uh, so I could imagine him saying, look, this costs time. It is expensive, right? It, it costs time and money. It could be resource intensive. It, it's a small percentage of the company's revenue. Um, so I could imagine him saying this costs money. Uh, I could imagine him saying, look, we're already doing these things. It's part of who we are. Uh, why would we go this further step? And like, look at investors. Are investors going to want to get involved with us if, uh, if we've tied ourselves in this way? What might Bob say to those more practical, pragmatic concerns? Yeah, those are all really important uh, concerns. And I do think, to me, the, the, the root reason why a company would do it is because the values of the company. And so I think that you know, the, the answers to Cynthia are the ones that I think are the, are the most important. But I do think there are a variety of pragmatic sort of instrumental reasons why this makes sense for a business too. You know, so I've talked to now probably close to 100 B Corps. Virtually universally, they say that going through the B Impact Assessment, this is the assessment um, the companies have to go through, has made them a better business. It's like a playbook for good management because they understand how to set up a company in a way that you know, it's not just socially and more environmentally responsible, but more long-term oriented, better risk management. So I would say one thing is that, you know, it would help systematize the company in in a really, in in a way that would make it a much more long-term performance oriented. I would also say that one of the things that has really stood out in my work with B Corps is that it is the extent to which employees both want to work at B Corps and once they're in the B Corps, never want to leave because of 
the employment practices uh, that, that, that you end up instituting as a result of becoming a, a B Corp, or you already have it, uh, and that's why you became a B Corp. So retention rates, many of the companies I've talked to, you know, retention rates are a fraction of peers in their industry. One of the interviews I remember, uh, someone told me they, they, they were asked, like, why, why, why did you become a B Corp? Why should I, as a company, become a B Corp? And they said, you'll never have to look for employees. You know, one, you know, my, my, my retention is 100%. And, uh, and then when I'm growing, I've got people lined out the door wanting to come work with me because there's a lot of, comp- lot of employees now, millennials, Gen Zs, you know, they want to work for a company that has a mission. And so there's lots of, lots of employees that's, that are around saying, I want to find a job at a B Corp and specifically target B Corps for jobs. So I think that, you know, this both sort of just having a better long-term oriented management structure and then also sort of this attraction uh, and, and maintenance of employees are two very big, you know, economic benefits. And I'm sure the, the finance manager, uh, uh, Alan, would know that like turnover costs a lot of money. So if you can retain your employees, hiring costs a lot of money. Uh, if you could lower hiring costs, and then when 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 you do have to hire, you've got your, the pick of a lot of great candidates. I mean, these are big economic benefits to the firm. So I think, you know, for those reasons, you know, Alan's objections are not that strong. Okay, so we've talked about Cynthia's objections. We've talked about Alan's objections, and they're coming from very different places. But they lined up on one thing. They both agreed that business shouldn't be the avenue for social change. And now I want to try and tease out what I think their reasons might be and maybe see what you have to think about it. So I imagine someone like Cynthia, really, really socially conscious, might have some kind of argument in mind like, look, business is the bad guy. It's not democratic. And so social change functions should be coming from entities that are democratically controlled, like our government, for example. And then I imagine the pragmatist has the kind of Milton Friedman idea, like the sole purpose of the company is to make money. This idea that it also has moral obligations or obligations to society is just kind of ridiculous uh, and overly idealistic. And so, yeah, businesses should not be the place for social change. So they have the same conclusion, different lines of reasoning. What do you think someone like Bob should say in that case? Yeah, so a couple of things. So obviously a couple of different responses. So I guess the first... Um on the, the, the government should be doing it. So certainly I think that, you know, B Corps and, and the nonprofits that are, that are behind it would agree that, that policy is important bedrock for delivering social and public goods and value in, in, our, in society and the world. So, uh, but many times for a variety of reasons, maybe new social issues come up Maybe the government doesn't have sort of the scope or resources to address everything. Uh, and so I think entrepreneurs, committed entrepreneurs, can find sort of new problems uh, that actually can be addressed in a nimble way that maybe the government would not be able to do so. So I think that the fact that these companies have different legal structures that makes them in some ways not fiduciarily, but 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 legally responsible for all stakeholders is very important uh, because it is important to actually have that sort of social good encoded within, within the firm. I think the, that a government has to do everything also is a little bit of a dated idea. You know, for a couple of years, I worked at the Harvard Kennedy School helping set up something called the Social Innovation and Change Initiative, 
which was a sort of social entrepreneurship, business-focused uh, social change initiative. And the dean of the, the Kennedy School said at the time, which I think really puts things very well, is that you know the mission of the Kennedy School is to help solve, alleviate the most vexing social and public problems in the world. And it was founded the Kennedy School government because at that time, government was really the main vehicle. Uh, came to encompass a lot of nonprofits uh, work, nonprofit management, because you know, you know, the NGO sector, you know, took on a lot of responsibility for also sort of solving those issues. And more recently, uh, entrepreneurs have have positioned business against many social issues, and that's sort of expanding the scope that it's, we want to solve social issues. And there's a variety of different tools uh, we can have. You know, traditionally, at least in the past, you know, number of years. Uh, 50 years or so, you know, NGOs have been very responsible for that as well. And I've talked to a number of B Corps that they actually tried to try to incorporate as an NGO or were NGOs and then and changing to business, changed to a B Corp. Uh, and they found that just actually being a nonprofit in many, in many cases, a lot of the work you do is actually trying to raise money. Uh, and, you know, if you have a service that actually can actually, you know, generate revenue, it makes much more sense to become a, a corporation because then you know you can make that you can spend all your time actually focused on trying to alleviate the social good. Long long-winded answer to Cynthia, and I agree with her that that policy needs to be a real bedrock of this, but but also there's a lot of creativity and a lot of space for business to work too. And I imagine if she has the government should be the one doing it, um, because business is the bad guy right take it the idea behind b corps is this this binds the business in a way so that it's legally it's legally bound to not be the bad guy right and indirectly the government's involved right because if the business is legally bound to not uh behave in certain ways the government indirectly has some influence in how the change is happening can be and can even be an enforcer of the change definitely Uh, definitely so let's turn to the pragmatist uh, who sort of has that uh, Milton Friedman idea that the sole purpose of the corporation is to make money. Your book is coming out on an important anniversary related to that, correct? Yeah. So the, this idea of Milton Friedman about shareholder primacy uh, dates to an article he wrote in the New York Times magazine. It was published on September 13th, 1970. Uh, it was called The Social Responsibility of Companies is to Make Profits arguing that companies should only make profits, not have any social responsibilities. So the book I'm writing is coming on the 50th anniversary of that, September 13, 2020. And you know, the hope is that you know, it plays a little role in shifting us from a shareholder primacy world to a stakeholder capitalism world. And I imagine we'd have a lot of work to do with Alan. We imagine he's someone who has that article framed on his wall somewhere. Do you have thoughts about that line or? Sure, so a couple of things. So one, uh, you know, it's real easy to think that this idea of shareholders being the most important constituencies for firms is sort of steeped in our culture over the past 50 years. Uh, there's been a variety of legal suits that have enforced this shareholder privacy, which is one of the reasons why establishing this benefit corporation form was very important because a variety of you know laws have laid down that, that the current corporate form is a shareholder privacy form. But you know, this is actually, this seems very natural, but actually the time before then, in the post-war economy, basically, companies were much more responsive and responsible to their communities, 
to their employees. You know, people had generous pensions. I read an article recently uh, written by Robert Reich, the former labor secretary under, under Bill Clinton, that, you know, there's research done on Sears. You know, if you were an employee at Sears in the 1950s and 60s, like a regular technician or salesperson, you would usually re retire due to profit sharing with like a million dollars. And, you know, companies did all kinds of great things in their communities. And so, you know, this idea that, you know, companies are shareholder focused is sort of a historical aberration of this recent period. It's not something that's natural uh, in any way at all. Uh, and if you even look back further, uh, my, my trainings in sociology, there's a variety of so historical sociologists that have looked, gone back and looked at the evolution of the corporation uh, and started out very much about doing community projects like you know, railroads or waterworks or canals. Uh, and these are things where you know, people had to come together and pool their resources to do some common good. And so corporations in, in no way are just sort of shareholder primacy by nature. And so one thing I would say that it's sort of a bastardization, excuse my language of, of, uh, of, of corporation to have it be shareholder primacy. I would also say that my opinion is that, you know, companies should really think a lot more about the inputs to their success. So certainly employees get paid, but they also contribute not just their time and their labor sort of their sort of spirit and values to the, to the company. And I think that's something that is frequently, you know, not recognized. So I think they should, they deserve some consideration uh, for that. They're, they're the people that built the business, uh, basically. I also think the communities that, that companies are in, uh, you know, things like, you know, many things that companies get, they're not actually charged for, like pollution, for instance, you know, all the discussion about carbon taxes, uh, more recently trying to put a price on companies' pollution is a result of community governments, national governments realizing, you know, companies are getting off sort of easy. They're actually able to, you know, basically put all their trash into our air, into our streams, uh, into our, you know, dumps and not be charged for it. So I think that, you know, things should be recognized that, you know, there's community resources that have gone into the, the company um, uh, as well. So I think that the idea of a stakeholder model is a lot more fair to recognize the inputs uh, of the company's productive capacity. Well, so tell us a little bit about tell us a little bit about the book. You know, the idea of the book it's called you know how the B Corp movement is remaking capitalism, and it's not necessarily that there should be more B corporations. I mean, I do think there should be, but you know, the there's only about thirty five hundred, which I think is a pretty small number. It's because the certification is very stringent uh, and it's actually very hard to become a B Corp or it's not just sort of a checklist. It's actually a very stringent and hard uh, certification. But through this last 10 years, 10 plus years that this community has developed, there's been developed a lot of other tools that help companies become more stakeholder driven. And I think that really that's the message of the book is that more companies can become like B corporations by embedding a lot of these stakeholder-oriented practices into their uh, management. You know, there's been a lot of discussion recently in, in the press, in the media, about stakeholder management. So a lot of these very influential actors like the Business Roundtable, World Economic Forum, have said that business should be more stakeholder-oriented. And that's really hard to do if you think about it. From a, you know, This is a company, they're, they're incorporated in its shareholder primacy model, you know, they've been in, in, existed in that world for a long time. 
to become stakeholder driven is a, is a hard thing to do. And so this model provides in some ways, you know, small tools, processes, baby steps in some ways for these companies to become uh, more stakeholder driven. So I think it's, you know, it's about, you know, ways that companies can become more stakeholder driven. So if you're a large company, you know, it'd be interesting to leader a large company or an entrepreneur would be interested to read for that perspective. I also think, uh, again, I think to Cynthia's uh, concerns, it's, it's a way for regular consumers to identify the real deal and what sort of an authentic social and environmental mission company is. And I think that's, you know, why it might appeal to more broader public is sort of understanding, you know, actually how you can identify what a good company is and you can align your purchases with your values. Well, I look forward to checking it out. And if you're interested in checking it out, uh, there will be a link to it on our show notes page. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Christopher, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. This is so fun to talk about it in a case like this. I really appreciate you having me on. Thanks so much for joining us as we try to get ethics to work. I'm Andy Cullison. We hope you are staying safe and healthy in this crisis. We also hope you can take some of what we discussed here and get it to work. If you have a question about business ethics you'd like answered on the podcast, email me, kateberry at katherineberry at depaw.edu, and maybe we'll talk through your issue on the air. And if you'd like what you've been hearing and want to help us out, the best thing you can do is recommend the show to a friend or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you want to learn more about what Chris and Andy talked about on the show today, check out our show notes page at prindleinstitute.org slash work. That's all one word, get ethics to work. Remember to subscribe to get new episodes of the show wherever you get your podcasts. But regardless of where you subscribe, please be sure to rate us on Apple Podcasts. It is the best way for us to meet new listeners. Getting Ethics to Work is hosted by the Janet Prindle Institute for Ethics at DePaul University. Our logo was created by Smallbox. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions and can be found online at www.sessions.blue. Our show is made possible with the generous support of DePaul alumni, friends of the Prindle Institute, and you, the listeners. Thank you for your support. The views expressed here are the opinions of the individual speakers alone. They do not represent the position of DePaul University or the Prindle Institute for Ethics. 